0: Welcome to a special edition of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host for this edition, and I'm Kevin Madden, senior partner here at Penta. That means I'm the guy that stuffs the junior partners and the sophomore partners in the lockers here at Penta. So today we're recording a special episode of What's at Stake where we're going to take a look at President Biden's State of the Union address. We have a new Republican majority in the House and we have the first 2024 presidential candidates jumping into the primary fray. And President Biden's address provided the American audience basically a sneak peek on his message and the potential big policy fights that are already starting to frame the 2024 cycle. We have a great crew here today to talk about this and break it down. I'm joined by Megan Pennington, a partner at Penta and Michael LaRosa. managing director at the firm. Megan is a veteran of Capitol Hill, where she served as communications director for Senator Tom Carper of the great state of Delaware. And before Penta, Michael LaRosa worked in the Biden White House as press secretary for the first lady, Dr. Jill Biden. And before I waged all those political battles on the presidential campaign trails in 2004 with President George W. Bush's reelection and in 2008 and 2012 as a spokesperson and strategist for Mitt Romney's campaigns. I earned my stripes as a leadership staffer up on Capitol Hill. Michael, a key feature of political success is managing expectations. And I feel like the expectations were low for Biden, but that shouldn't take away anything from the success of the speech. Do you agree? And what were the expectations headed into the State of the Union?
1: Well, I think going into it, he had an incredible story to tell. One of a lot of accomplishments, some Bipartisan accomplishments um, and progress. And I think he used the bully pulpit effectively to communicate um, that very long list of tangible results that have had, you know, more real impact on people's lives than any president has really delivered in four or eight years, let alone two. So the exact impact of his domestic achievements done with a majority in the House, similar to that of Kevin McCarthy now has been really unrivaled since LBJ in terms of deliverables. He was the first president to come into office inheriting like a a national crisis since FDR. And the one that Biden inherited was a crisis like we haven't seen since Abraham Lincoln. With our economy effectively shut down, our country effectively shut down, 300 American deaths. So I think he had a lot of bragging rights and a really good story to tell. And it was important for him to remind the American people where we were two years ago where we are today and how we got here. I think he did that in spades. And I think the White House believes uh, and feels that the president exceeded expectations. And uh, there was a lot of champagne flowing in the diplomatic reception room when he got there.
0: Yeah, I think you kind of make my point, though, which is that he exceeded expectations because they were low. But that's a good thing. That's okay. Megan. Yeah. I don't think the, I don't think most people watching it at home really think about the historical context or, you know, really think about these things through the frame of even managing expectations. I think it's right. more like, let's see what they're, tri- they're prioritizing. And, uh, are those priorities aligned with mine?
2: I tend to agree with you, Kevin. I think my big two takeaways from the speech were one, I thought the president was comfortable in his skin and he practiced well. Giving these big speeches and, you know, being good on his feet hasn't been his strong suit maybe in the past, you know, months and years and less Performance
0: has never really been his forte.
2: And I think on Tuesday evening, he did, he did well. I mean, he was making jokes. He felt, he felt like he was comfortable and he was kind of getting to that conversational President Biden, Vice President Biden, Senator Biden personality that has made him relatable and has made people trust him. Um, so I was glad to see that. Um, I also thought that we saw him in his sweet spot of trying, I think, to convey he wants to work together across um, the aisle. You know, in Delaware, we have something, I know Michael will laugh when I say this. It is really true, though, in Delaware, they talk about the Delaware way. It is it is um, ingrained in President Biden as a legislator to figure out a way in the middle. I mean, obviously, as president, it's a different role. He has to be this, the leader of the party. But I think um, he, he was kind of breathing life into the, hey, guys, there's a good way to do this. There's we have a responsibility to serve our country. And let's try to come together on the things um, that that we know we can do together. Of course, there were some issues that we that were discussed that are, you know, we're never going to see um, bipartisan compromise on. But I I think he. I thought it was good that he tried to emphasize the opportunity at least to try to do something.
0: Megan, how long do you think before he starts calling them ultra-MAGA Republicans again?
2: Uh, I mean, I think the ones that are ultra-MAGA Republicans will probably start calling them th- that right away. I mean, we also saw some of our some of the most conservative members of that body having uh, animated and big reactions to some of what he was saying. I thought the president handled it well. I mean, the truth is— the, the the spectrum, the range of ideology in our politics right now is maybe the broadest we've ever seen it.
0: I don't think those voices are conservative. I would agree with you, though, that they're probably the loudest and mm-hmm. they could be labeled extreme.
2: Oh, I would agree with you that they are not conservative. I think I think both of our parties are struggling with fringe, and it is something that will, makes bipartisanship very, very hard.
0: Yeah. So when you say Delaware, that's what I think of. I think of the bridge because I used to have to go over the Delaware Bridge on yeah. my way back to New York. But Michael, the key to his success, in my view, is the platform and the scene, the stadium that he was sort of singing in, which is he loves being up there on Capitol Hill in Congress, with all his old friends in the Senate, and some of his old friends in the House, and more important than the substance of the speech and the, you know, just really going through that checklist of unobjectionable items that really the American public is aligned with, it's the lingering afterwards and the images of him sort of palling around with folks on the on the uh, on the floor of the House.
1: Yeah, he looked like he was at home. Um, last year, after the State of the Union he was asking a bunch of us what we thought. And we just said, Oh, you look so comfortable. And he was like, it's home. And it truly was. And he was, he looked like he was enjoying himself up there. He, he sounded like he was having a conversation with the Congress in front of the American people on live national television. Um, And it looks like he could have done it for, for two more hours. And he sort of reacted to and fed off the, you know, some of the interruptions from the other side he improved a lot. Like you said, he he was doing an incredible job of showmanship and um, he was just able to masterfully manipulate the Republicans into taking the bait on the entitlements um, off the table on national TV. And going into this, it was their hope uh, to draw a contrast between this man who takes fixing problems seriously, who takes legislating and governing very seriously, and draw a contrast with a party that's very unserious, ungracious, and out of control. They hoped to lure Republicans into a political box, and they played right into his hands. And so he successfully elevated a very classic attack on Republicans about cutting entitlements. And now you're seeing him in Florida, the home of Rick Scott. He was in Wisconsin yesterday, the home of Ron Johnson, all of whom are on the record. And he brought the receipts And so he just came prepared to the, to the state of the union and they really won the, the politics, the messaging, and they won the coverage. And they're continuing to do that today. I would disagree
0: that the entitlements debate is off the table. As we have seen, the Republicans have very quickly pointed out that there are potential Medicare Advantage cuts that are still on the table because of decisions made by the administration. So there's some still political vulnerabilities there. It's going to be, for sure, a very pitched battle over the next couple of months. This
1: is the conversation that Democrats want to have. It is on Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. This This is a conversation that they want to have.
0: So here's here's the bigger question. And I
1: want to move quickly to
0: impact because they this thing takes place in 90 minutes. And when it was Bill Clinton, it would be two hours. Um, but uh, what's the ultimate impact that this speech has? Does it endure? My old saying about the State of the Union, it is that it it's the political equivalent of cotton candy. The speech itself, 90 minutes melts on contact. But it's, it's how you start to now wage the debate around the issues that were brought up in it over the long period of time that really matters. So if you're a business leader in America, why should you pay attention to the state of the union and where do you think this political fight goes now? I'll start with you, Megan.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Kevin. I think that. Time candy is perfect. I've never heard that before. I'm going to use that now. I think what business you have to any- you have
0: to cite that it came from Kevin Madden. Just so you know, that's trademarked, and I Listen, I am somewhat litigious about that. So you do not want to I, hear from my lawyers.
2: No, yeah. I and I also don't want to be stuffed in the locker. So please trust. There you go. So I will be I will be citing you anytime I use it and proud to do so. Um, but but no, I think uh, a business leader advocates anybody watching to see what this administration is going to do in the next two years. I think you can take away the blueprint. We we know that the economy is going to be at the at the top of everyone's minds. Now digging one click deeper into what does that mean? I think that's where everybody's going to kind of go to work and and see Where is the administration going to go? I thought it was interesting, you know, like you take, um, he criticized the tech platforms. That was interesting to me because this is an administration that has actually invited. There are many alums, meta alums that are working in the White House. They've tried to harness the use of social media to amplify their message. I think that the administration is going to have to figure out the president is going to have to figure out how hard is he going to go at some of these things and how is he going to navigate that, you know, especially partisan battles in a world where we know that Congress is bitterly divided and you know the outlook for bipartisanship is so low. In fact, our recent, our 2023 Washington Insights Review that we just put out a couple of weeks ago shows that policymakers are saying their outlook for bipartisanship is lower than ever. So, okay, your business leader watching, heard the speech, where do you think the president is going to focus his efforts? We have to imagine there's going to be something on workforce. We know that some of these, Other issues that are going to cause vitriol and fighting on both sides. You know, the president name checked big oil. Do we think that, you know, the the administration could really try to do something there? I would guess no. That's going to be a message thing and probably not a legislative priority. So I I think that it will all kind of be parsing out what is going to be rhetoric and where are there places that the administration can actually try to push and claim some credit going into 2024.
1: Michael? I think we're in a different situation than we've ever been in, in a long time because this incumbent, unlike Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan, or even Donald Trump or Barack Obama, he doesn't have to reset priorities. Joe Biden never had to prove that he could work with the other side. Everybody knows that. That was like his Achilles heel in a Democratic primary. He's willing to work with everybody. That's what everybody knows and loves about him. So I don't think he's going to make any any changes. I think they're going to keep the same priorities because they feel very vindicated after an election that was supposed to be a wave that just wasn't. And they overperformed. They feel a lot of vindication there. So they're going to double down on a lot of things, but they are going to throw it back into the court of the speaker because it's he who has to prove that he can be taken seriously and can be a trusted partner in the governing game. Nancy Pelosi was with a very slim majority. This speaker has to prove that he can work with this president, not the other way around. And the only two things he has to do is raise the debt ceiling and prepare a budget and have a fight over funding the government. Those are the only two things that we're going to see over the next year. But
0: Michael, is that a, is that a danger for, for the president? Because there's oh. two things. You hold on. When you're the president, you're the titular head of. Washington as an institution and its functionality. So when you say, well, hey, he's gonna let the speaker come out and do his thing and the, the onus is on the speaker, that's not the way that the public very largely looks at whether or not Washington is functioning. That's why presidents always pay a huge price when it's seen as dysfunctional, even if it's there's somebody else to blame on that. The second part of it is when you say they feel vindicated and they're not going to change, president's approval ratings are still very, very low. And there are a number of polls that came out just before the State of the Union that indicated problems with seniors, problems on the economy, problems on uh, right track, wrong track for the country. Saying you're not going to
1: change, thats there's some risk there then, correct? Sure. But inflation's coming down. If you look at the numbers, if you go back to set the stage to, like I said earlier, to where he was when he came into office, he has nothing but progress to show. So they feel like they have a winning formula on, on the economy. If you look at the jobs market, if you look at where inflation is coming down, um, they feel like they are winning. And what they said the other night, and what I think you're going to see over the next two years is some of the policies that they implemented over the last two years, you're going to start feeling that. It was like, oh, I said this the other day, but Barack Obama when they passed Obamacare, nobody could feel the effects of having a health care option or or having Obamacare in in the 2010 election. They felt it by 2012 because they certainly didn't want their health care taken away. And you're going to see a lot of that, especially with infrastructure. He won't have to do a ton. And and while the media is focused on a presidential race, uh, we're going to be focusing on a Congress who will probably be fighting themselves
0: Megan, a lot of winning um, and not having to change course and just doing things the same way that you've been doing them for the last two years when you're at 39, 41, 42% smart strategy.
2: I I'm not going to disagree with my good friend, Michael. I'm just going to add another dimension and <laughs> say, I think that he, the president will have to figure out how to claim success for some of the good stuff that happened in the past two years, but be able to talk about it in a way that doesn't detract from you know i think he has to lean into i am safe i am i can make sure that everybody feels secure i can grow this economy i'm not volatile the other we have we have folks on the other side who are volatile we don't know who is going to be the nominee there is they can't elect a speaker without however many days of turmoil We need to do the regular business of running this country, and I think he will have to lean into the the personality and the you know quote unquote performance of the of of Tuesday night. I do think that there has to be a little bit of a pivot. But I don't think it's walking away. I mean, he did have great victories. The Chips and Science Act, the Respect for Marriage Act, um, you know, infrastructure law, like the president has a good track record going into these next two years. But he is going to have to appeal to Republicans who are skeptical of some of the more radical members of the party. And now I think that he should do so with a positive message of his own, not casting his persons on the other side and not, you know, saying like pointing over there, look how crazy they are. In fact, it's better that he says, here are the ways for that, you know, that we're going to put that infrastructure money to work. Have parents feeling like their children are going to have a more successful and a more financially successful life than they did. So, well, uh, I Megan, have- yeah,
0: you're mentioning the the, the Kevin Madden creep which is personalize and localize it. So they have to bring to life a lot of these issues and – all yeah. the important districts and battleground states across the country.
1: I think that's why he's in Pinellas County today talking to seniors. Yeah, yeah. There's two If th- there's two things that I
0: have remembered about presidential campaigns and what it takes to win. it's First is, every contest comes down to the question of whether or not this person understands the problems of people like me. If you answer that in the affirmative, you can win. So I think for the one of the reasons I thought the president did a good job in his speech is that if you look at the laundry list of things that people care about and they want addressed by the government, he, he largely went through a checklist and Spoke very positively and optimistically about this. The second big test, which I think Joe Biden, President Biden is going to have a problem with, is these are always contests for the future. And it's harder to carry that message when the age issue that lingers out there, not only with his critics, but with even his most ardent supporters. So we'll see how he handles that. But last thoughts before we close up.
2: Um, I'm excited. I'm excited to see what the next few weeks and months are going to look like. I, I really was pleased. I have a lot of respect. What's for the, the president. number one was...
0: thing you're going to be watching for, uh, Megan? Sorry to interrupt. But what's the one thing you're yeah. going to be watching for in the next few weeks?
2: I am going to be watching for, you know, is he going to go connect with those moderate Democrats that I think feel very strongly that it's the economic message and personalizing and localizing that economic message that can win an election in 2024? I, I, I would love to see the president having them over to the White House, you know, making sure that those, his members there, my old boss, Tom Carper, that they are saying we, you know, especially like on, on entitlements, how do we tell the American people that we are here for them and we are the safe and the sane option? I will be looking forward to seeing signs of that.
1: Michael? So I don't want to just be the be a Biden flack. I've been really critical of how they handled a lot of uh, things in foreign policy. And I thought that they robbed themselves of some goodwill um, especially with independents that they, they've continued to win over, uh, over the, the documents issue. But what I would say is that Tuesday night, he showed Republicans that he, even at 80, he's a very skilled, agile politician. And what he showed Democrats going into this cycle is that he can still throw a punch and he can still fight. And I think that's what they, they've been looking for. Um, And I think everybody, at least on that side of the aisle, feels really good about about him as the standard bearer. The good news is elections are always about a choice between two people. Right. So uh, let's see. Let's see who that other person is.
0: Yeah, I think that's. That's important, and uh, the thing I'm watching for is can the White House consistently drive a message and really maintain the message discipline on optimism and bipartisanship and the big focus on uh, the kitchen table issues at a time where you know maybe their opponents and critics in the House are busy doing these investigations that maybe are outside the the real core concerns that voters have about their pocketbook issues. But that that remains to be seen. And I talked about this to Michael Shear in the New York Times article that uh, was out today about you know the message consistency. Sometimes they get tired of their own message and they start going back to the ultra MAGA stuff, which um, can seem divisive and sort of dilute the brand of, of being optimistic and bipartisan. Kevin, what did you think about the response? I thought the response was indicative of what really drives base voters in the Republican Party right now, which is that it was very focused on culture wars. That plays very well with the base. But we remember politics is about base plus one, securing your base and then mobilizing and persuading a bigger swath of the American electorate that doesn't view many of these issues and doesn't view the trajectory of the country, the direction of the country through those issues, but instead really thinks about the economy, jobs. Healthcare costs, energy costs, and more of that. I think would have uh, would have been a better part of uh, Governor Huckabee Sanders' speech. Would have resonated with those voters. We know are going to matter. Swing voters in draw, draw a thirty mile radius around Atlanta, Phoenix, Columbus, Ohio, uh, Charlotte. North Carolina and that's the whole ball game. And then, you know, Wisconsin, Michigan, we could go through this all day, but I want to thank you both so much for uh, joining the show today. This is a really great conversation. It will be continued after I stuff a couple of uh, junior and sophomore partners in the lockers uh, around Penta. To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to this episode of What's at stake. Uh, remember. I want you to like this podcast. I want you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we really would love it if you follow us on Twitter at Pentagroup, which is at PentaGRP. That is the Pentagroup's Twitter handle. And I am your host, Kevin Madden. We will see you next time on What's at stake? A Penta podcast.
2: Thank you for listening to What's at Stake, a podcast produced by Penta. For the latest updates, follow us on Twitter at PentaGRP and follow us on the web at Penta.co.